Okay, if you have your Bible with you, would you like to turn to Ezra and chapter 1? Ezra chapter 1. And um, just to remind you of the background, God's people had been set free from Egypt, where they'd been slaves for generations, and had been taken to a land which God promised them. And it was going to be like another, if you like, another Eden. It was going to be like a special place. He said, my presence will be there. And yet they were told they must live in a certain way that was pleasing to God. Sadly, they didn't. After many warnings, uh, many prophets came to them and said, look, if you don't change your lifestyle, just as God pushed Adam and Eve out of Eden, you will have to get out of this promised land. And eventually they did. God said, enough's enough. And they were thrown out of the land. But with a promise from Jeremiah that there would be a time of restoration, a time of recovery. There would be a time when they would go back into God's promises. And this uh, book of Ezra and Nehemiah and several books at this part of your Bible are about the times of restoration. And to be honest, we feel they're ever so relevant because that's what we feel. The tide is turning. God is restoring his church. And if you like, this building is part of a very physical display of that reality, that, that God is on the move. I've recently heard, I'm sure you have, of a number of churches suddenly getting warehouses and other buildings, sports places, and God is raising up his people. And there's a sense we're coming out of a pretty dark season. Well, that's what the book of Ezra is all about. There's people coming out from a very dark season of God's judgment, actually. And he was restoring and recovering them. So I'm just going to read the first opening verses of Ezra and chapter 1, and then we're going to read a few verses in Isaiah chapter 1. I'm reading from the NASB. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you, of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God which is in Jerusalem. And then the heads of the fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God has stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, with valuables aside from all that was given as free will offering. Also King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar 
had carried from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. Verse 11, all the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400. Sheshbazar brought them up, the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Just turn to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 7. This is Isaiah's prophetic comment, actually, even before it happened. But Isaiah saw it prophetically of what it would be like for God's people to be thrown out of the land. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 7. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon, Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I'll not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Father, we do pray in the name of Jesus that your spirit will right now rest upon us, being our teacher, bringing us illumination and understanding, opening up these scriptures, these ancient stories, and giving them relevance to us this morning, Lord. We thank you. Your word is living and powerful. We thank you, Lord, that it can have impact in our lives. So come, Holy Spirit, come and do us good to your praise and to your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So here we have an Old Testament story. As I mentioned briefly a moment ago, it is terrifically relevant for our time because it's speaking of a season where recovery is beginning to take place. But it's happening against the backdrop of some very, very sad experience. They had been thrown out from the land. They'd come away from the blessing of God. They no longer had their temple where God's manifest presence was felt. Uh, they established uh, synagogues, places where they could open the sacred scriptures and read them. They gathered, yes, certainly to their sacred writings, but they had no temple, no Shekinah glory, no sense God is among us. And now God is going to start again and work in their lives. And I want to look at this uh, from three separate perspectives. The first one is this survivors whose judgment 
is in the past. Okay, survivors whose judgment is in the past. You'll notice that in verse 4, they are addressed by Cyrus as every survivor. That's how he describes them. We hear a lot today about survivors. I wonder if you've been uh, aware of that, that often on our television screens, uh, whether it's uh, 9-11, or maybe it's the tsunami, or maybe one of the Florida uh, tornadoes, or maybe... Uh, an earthquake such as the one in Pakistan last year. First of all, the news comes, the terrible, terrible news of the event and, and the loss of life and the whole uh, amazing impact that you see, maybe with buildings falling or maybe the floods taking over. But then, over the next few days, our cameras are pointing on, are there any survivors? Sometimes people covered in blood or dust uh, have a microphone put in their face or maybe we see sniffer dogs and suddenly they say, I think, I can, I think there's a sound under there. And maybe even sometimes a few days after the dramatic event, they're pulling off uh, heavy rocks and underneath, yes, there was a cry. Someone survived. And we find that uh, the survivors begin to tell their story. Survivors are those who escape the event. Those who go through this dramatic experience and come out the other side. And Cyrus says, those who are the survivors. It's an interesting way to describe these people of Israel. The ones who survived the whole experience. But you know, it's wonderful to be a survivor, but people tend to survive at some cost. They don't come through unscathed. Have you noticed that? That when people come out of some event, maybe they escape from warfare. Uh, when they come through, it's not like, oh, it was okay, I made it. It has an effect on them. Survivors are affected by what they went through. And so here we find, for instance, survival from warfare. Okay? This is, what did they survive? They survived, first of all, the warfare. It had been terrible, terrifying, slaughtering warfare. If you look back at the previous book in your Bible, Second Chronicles 36, it describes something about it, how God brought this army down, how they burned things, how they smashed things. It says in verse 19 of 2 Chronicles 36, they burned the house of God, they broke down the wall of Jerusalem, they burned its fortified buildings with fire, destroyed all the valuable articles, and those who escaped the sword carried away and were made servants. And so, yeah, they went through a terrible experience of warfare. So much so that, as I read to you just now, Isaiah prophetically, beginning to see it was going to happen by the Spirit, just as Jeremiah has, Jeremiah saw it in advance. He warned in advance. He said, my heart is breaking within me. I can hear the hoofbeats of this oncoming slaughtering army. It was terrifying. He says they're marching in line, they're coming in terrifying power. And although Jeremiah's contemporaries were saying, oh no, the temple of the Lord, <laughs> the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, God's with us, we've got the temple. But as Isaiah said, no look, you're not living as you should live before me. You come with your external worship, 
but your hearts are far removed. I hate externalism. I'm going to close the whole thing down. That's the passage I read to you. And in verse 9 of chapter 1 of Isaiah, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors. There's that word again. If he had only left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. And then the passage went on to say, listen to me, Sodom. It's like God gave Israel the name Sodom, Gomorrah for a while to, to show them the horror of what they'd been through. But there had been a few survivors. Surviving war is no small thing. This weekend, people are remembering the Falklands War, which was not a, a massive international event, but even there, there will be those who will be weeping. There will be those not just thinking, oh yeah, that was, that was exciting, wasn't it? Because they'll be remembering they survived, but others didn't. And that's one of the marks of survivors. Many who come through, it's very difficult to get them to talk about it. I bought Wendy the book by Melvin Bragg called The Soldier's Return. It's a classic book of his because it's a novel, but it's based on the experience of some who were in the Burma War. And when they came home, they had difficulty speaking about it. And Wendy's father was there, part of the Second World War. I've read also the story of Iwo Jima. And you'll find the guy who wrote the book Flags of Our Fathers, he said, my father was there, but he wouldn't talk about it. I wonder if any of you have seen the story Saving Private Ryan. It's a kind of amazing movie. I think it was the first movie I ever went to. I went to buy an ice cream, I think, before I went in. And the guy said, the first 20 minutes are very harrowing, sir. I thought, wow, this must be a harrowing film. And certainly it was. But you remember the turning point and actually the conclusion of the movie, where one guy is rescued, one guy survives, but many have died. And uh, at the end, he says, please tell me it was worthwhile. Please tell me I, I lived a worthwhile life because I survived. I got through it. And they don't come through unscathed, but there's this sense that I escaped, others didn't. I got through, others were lost. And so people who survive can often have a sense of, do I have a destiny? Is, was my life safe for a reason? And you'll find that it often characterizes such people. Why me? I have a sense of stewardship. I lived. And as the fellow says in Saving Private Ryan, please tell me I lived a worthwhile life because I was given my life back. Survivors from war. But they were also survivors from a refugee experience. It wasn't just a, a conflict, not just swords and shields, but yeah, they're taken away down into Babylon, where there's, yeah, different language, different culture, no home, no colleagues, friends. And there they were through a difficult situation in a foreign land, trying to survive, being ostracized, all kinds of pressures associated with that that they went through. They had survived sustained isolation, the Jewish people not blending in, but keeping themselves as refugees. Thirdly, and perhaps most important of all, they survived God's judgment. They came through what was not just conflict. Jesus said there will always be wars and rumours of wars and world history is full of wars. 
But this wasn't just an ordinary war. This was something that God had ordained. God had judged his people. He had warned them repeatedly, you must come back, you must honor me, you must live the way I've called you to live. And eventually God said, enough. I will bring in judgment against you. And so this wasn't just ordinary war. It was God's personal act of dealing with his children. He said, Assyria, the rod of my anger. This great nation was like a stick in God's hand saying, come, I'm judging you. And here were people who survived that judgment. They'd come through judgment. They came out with a sense of, hey, God has judged, but we are the other side of it. God has acted in severe judgment, but we've got through. We've got our lives back. We have come through that terrible, terrible experience. Really like, no doubt, the Israelites when they were in Egypt. When God said, I am going to judge right through Egypt. He was going to act. He said the sin of that nation had come up to him. The cries of his people had come up to him. And God said to Moses, I am going to act. And eventually act in serious judgment. And God's judgment swept right through Egypt. The Israelites heard cries coming from home after home after home where firstborn were dying. But they were told, take a lamb, kill it, put the blood outside the door. And when I sweep through, you will survive because of the blood of the lamb. And I'm sure that when they heard the cries coming out from other homes, they must have thought, oh God, are we going to survive? Will we come through this? But when God saw the blood, they survived. They survived God's judgment. And that's, of course, particularly where we feel a tremendous sense of identification with these people. We know this, that God has acted in judgment. God hates sin. God has hated our sin. God is hostile to the fact that we have sinned against him. And he has to act in judgment against us. But praise God, we all know, it says in Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. The Lord crushed him. God dealt with Jesus in our place so that we, yeah, we survive. We come out on the other side. We're the other side of judgment. We've come through. We've escaped. We've escaped those terrible days of judgment, of dealing with the people of God. We have come through and out of the other side. So here are people who survived warfare. They've survived uh, refugee experience. And they've survived God's judgment and come out of the other side. And then just notice this too. They've survived by having a distinct identity. They are still his people. Isn't that wonderful? He says, every survivor, which of his people? He still gets called, they still get called his people. And this is the amazing thing with God. That although God will sometimes deal with us and chasten us, and maybe you've been through such a time, maybe you feel, God, is God, God seems to have given me such a tough, tough season. Maybe you feel, I'm being chastened by God. In fact, the Bible says this, no Christian knows nothing about chastening. He chastens every child that he receives. There are seasons of discipline. But it also says in Hebrews, when he chastens you, don't faint. Don't, don't think, oh, it's hopeless. God, God's given up on me. Actually, it's his people that he chastens. 
And here it says quite clearly, let those who are his people, but we who've been through all that, yes, you, are we still his people? He's talking about Sodom, Gomorrah. Yeah, you're still his people. You've survived. You're the other side of judgment and you're still his people. It's so important, dear friends, if you've gone through a season of difficulty, you come out the other side not thinking, oh, I got through it, but no, I'm still his. We're still in his. And even for the church of God in this nation, which has been such a mocked and despised thing, and the churches are closing, closing, closing all around, and God's breathing fresh breezes of life. He's saying, you're still my people. I'm still among you. All those who have survived the season of judgment, the time of God saying, close that one, close that one, close that one, shut that one, shut that one, close that one. And we see churches that have turned into museums and mosques and all sorts of things. And now God's saying, I'm breathing afresh. I'm coming again. You're still his people. We've survived that season of judgment. We've survived even after the cross. We've survived the exile. We still belong. Hallelujah. We still belong to this great God. And we can say this, nothing will ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ. But we have this this feeling about us. Paul says this in Galatians 6, I have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to me. There's that that awful sense where I should have died, but I survived. I got through. I saw a program, a documentary, a few weeks back on the Blitz years in London. And uh, night by night, uh, buildings were burned and fell. And a guy was telling his story, a very elderly man now, and he said that he was a fireman. He said, I had stood for hours holding this hose and just directing this great uh, lot of water up into this massive building. It was on fire above him. He said, I stood there. And they showed shots similar to this. And uh, you could see the, the thing. And uh, he said, I stood there for hours and hours. And it was cold and it was difficult. And he said, and, and a man came and said, a colleague, said, look, let me take over. I'll take over. You've had a long enough shift. And he said, okay, oh, thanks very much. I was so exhausted. He said, the man took the thing and pointed. He said, within five minutes after I'd gone, the whole building fell. And he was killed. He said, but I survived. And that whole sense, I was given my life back. That's the mark of a survivor. I've been given my life back. And Jesus says this, well, he's poor in Colossians 3. He says that we have been raised with Christ. We seek those things that are above. Or elsewhere, he says this, if one died, all are dead. It's like, I feel as though I've given my life back. I must treasure it. I must make sure it counts. I must make sure, thank you Lord, I survived. I want my life to count for God. Don't you feel that? I thank you Jesus, you stood in my place. I thank you Jesus, you said, no, I'll take the punishment. I'll take the wrath. I'll do it. Just like when they were in Gethsemane. And Jesus said, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus said, let these others go. Jesus being that wonderful shepherd, he stepped straight and he said, I'm the one. And you think, well, they walked away. They were given their lives. Dear friends, we, we here today, as those who have been given our lives back, we've been given a life that's freely ours. And God wants us to live as those who have been given 
another opportunity to be very focused. Say, thank you, Jesus. I've got my life back. I've survived judgment. I'm the other side of judgment. There is no judgment for those who are in Christ. It's behind us. We're out the other side. We're new creatures. We've escaped judgment. We're new creations. We've been raised with him to newness of life. Let's live as those alive from the dead. And our lives belong to him. Amen. Hallelujah. We are survivors then. Okay, so first of all, we've seen survivors whose judgment is passed. Right. The word goes out. Those of you who are survivors. The second thing is, they were seers with a vision for the future. Right? There were survivors whose judgment was passed. They're seers with a vision for the future. And so, first of all, I want to say it was a small group. You read in Ezra 2 and 64, there were 42,360 of them. 42,000. That's the whole of Israel. It's like two stoneleys. 42,000. You think, that's the whole of Israel? When they came out with Moses, there were two million of them. And when they pressed into the land, and Solomon, and David, and they became one of the greatest empires in the world, now you're talking about 42,000? Yeah, they were very small. Can this be God's people? Can this be really the people of God? Yeah, that's not unusual in Old Testament history, in a sense. In Elijah's day, he thought he was the only one left. And God said, no, there are 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee. And in Samuel's day, it says, the light had nearly gone out. There were times in Jewish history when things got worse and worse. That's been true in church history. There have been seasons when things have got very small. And even, you'll find in Gideon's day, when he fought that famous battle, God himself cut down the numbers, you remember, for Gideon's army. And so, first of all, I want to underline, God is not limited by his people feeling irrelevant, small. I mean, here's Cyrus. He's the great emperor. He's the guy handling the big foreign policy decisions of his generation. He is the the world power, it would appear. We are just 42,000 survivors. But actually, this is where God's purpose is. This is the wonder of being his people that we carry God's purpose for the world. We are the light of the world. There is no other light. And here, these 42,000, within them, somewhere carried the ancestor to the Lord Jesus Christ. Somewhere between them, they were carrying the future. They were carrying God's plan for the world. And so sometimes, yes, numbers grow small in God's wisdom. But we mustn't get scared and say, oh, what on earth is happening? Because God, as Jonathan said to his armor bearer, God can say by many or by few. And just the two of them got a great triumph and a great victory. So, yes, they were a small group. They were a small group. When you see the beginning of uh, Luke's Gospel, I I love the beginning of Luke's Gospel, where you get Simeon and Anna and those little prophecies, God's doing a new thing. It's like spring is breaking out after a long winter. Just a handful who are still faithful and suddenly come the promises. John the Baptist, Jesus, the Twelve, the breakthrough of God. God can move with a small, small group. Notice too, they were, 
They were a civilian group. All right? They're not an army. They're not trained soldiers. This isn't like David's day with mighty men, swords and shields and battleground. No, no, these are, this is a civilian group, not well resourced, not looking to their own strength. There's a strange verse that says, God does not take delight in the strength of a horse or the legs of a man. <laughs> Doesn't take delight in the legs of a man. What is he saying? He says, I don't put confidence in your human strength. I don't take, put confidence in, the, in the, the flaring nostrils of a charging horse with all its strength and energy. No, no. I can work even where it's small and apparently vulnerable. They were small, they were civilian, but perhaps most important, they were a seeing group. What do I mean by that? I mean, they were those who believed that God was still moving. Those survivors, and the passage says, whose spirit God has stirred to go and rebuild the house of God. Now, in our generation, where people are saying Christianity's died, you should very much identify with a verse like that. As you have worked hard, as you've committed yourselves, as you've found finance and given to this, something in your heart is stirring. God wants to rebuild his house. God wants to do something in our generation that affects your contemporaries in Winchester and beyond who walk up and down these streets. Not only here, but to the ends of the earth. God has stirred something in us that says we still believe in the house of God. We still believe God wants to build his house, whether it's here or indeed in Japan. Recently I had the joy of praying with a couple from our own church who are going out to join uh, Tom and Julie and uh, uh, they're super couple and uh, uh, they've they just gone and then Wendy and I were down in Cape Town within just a couple of weeks and we were at Jubilee Church Cape Town and there was David and Danielle Fraser going from that church and they said would you come and pray and I thought this is amazing I've just prayed uh, for Simon and Helen at home now I'm praying for David and Danielle in Cape Town and they're both all four of them going out to be in Japan and God's building his house in these various places he's building a house for his glory and when people go like Tom and Julie did and they went to Ghana, actually, originally, with a view possibly to going to Africa. And I remember when Tom came back from Ghana, he came to see me. He said, while I was in Ghana, God spoke to me. I thought he was going to say, we're going back. He said, he said go to Japan. I thought, it's a funny deal. You go to Africa and get told to go to Japan. But he's gone. They've been there for a few years, working at language, beginning to build something for the glory of God. And in their heart, they're small they're civilian, but they've seen a house for God. They've seen something. It's like David in an earlier generation said, it's in my heart to build a house for God. And that's our passion. We want to build something for the glory of Christ for our generation, don't we? We want to give our generation opportunity to face the reality there is a God you can know. There's a God who can teach you, as Mark was implying earlier, how to be good fathers and husbands, how to raise godly families, how to live in this world's society, how to do a good day's job, how to demonstrate the life of God in our lives and build a house for him. And here these people were stirred to go 
and build, in spite of being so small. And in that sense, they were like Abraham. It's interesting, when God came to Abraham, see, he didn't come to Israel, did he? If I, you know, it would make more sense. Israel had 12 sons. You can imagine God coming to Israel and saying, Wow, well done, 12. I promise you, you will have thousands of children. kind of makes more sense when you've already got 12. But God came to Abraham who was too old to have children. His wife was barren and said, through you, I will bless all the families of the earth. Can you count the stars? Can you count the sand? So many will your children be. And Abraham believed God. Abraham, it says, saw a city with foundations. He could see what God wanted. He was a a visionary, a seer. And beloved, we need to be such. As we press on, We need to be believing God. We need to be seeing what God will do. Seeing his breakthrough. When it looks impossible, we see him work. I've had the privilege and joy in these last, I don't know, maybe months and months now, most Sundays praying for sick people at the end of the meeting. I'd love to do that this morning if we can. And and looking at people who are in real problems and praying and seeing them freed. Absolutely freed. God can do it. Because, hey, we're looking not at the scene... But of the unseen, we're looking at God's faithfulness, we're looking at God's promises, we're looking at what God says he will do, in spite of what is facing us at the moment. He wants us to be like that. He wants us to say, as one day you looked at this building and said, hey, that building, that could be a real wonderful centre for God. Somebody had the visionary approach, and now corporately we're saying, right, this is going to be for the glory of God in this town. They were seers, they were captivated by something they could not yet see. It's so important, dear friends, we're not just living in the immediate, we're living, looking at what God himself has promised he will do. It's, it's so good to dream. What does God want? What's God after? What's God's purpose? And then to find that God co-labors with you, makes all sorts of things happen around you so that his purpose begins to break through it's said about Walt Disney that uh, sadly he died before Disneyland was built and as Disneyland went up the comment was isn't it tragic that Walt Disney never got to see Disneyland and the answer came if he hadn't seen it it wouldn't be here now he was a visionary. He, he saw into the future. He thought, this is what I want. This is what I want to build. I want to build a kind of a magic kingdom that no one, from inside you can't see the real world. I want to just have an escape fun place. He had a vision for something long before it was there. It's so important, beloved, that in our nation at the moment, we have a vision for something that's not yet there. God wants to break out on the right hand and the left. God wants a glorious church. And we're to be visionaries who really know this is possible. And so these who started this long journey, they thought, I believe this is possible. Wendy and I were in uh, Dubai in January. We'd been there the previous January. And we went back this time to see Clyde Chernick and the church that he and uh, his wife Heather are helping to bring through. And the church had doubled in size. And there it is, right in the midst of a Muslim nation. In fact, we went with Matt Redman uh, earlier, 
and, and matches. I don't know if anybody will know my songs or how will it go in an Islamic nation. And we hired a huge place and 2,000 people turned up right in the midst of Dubai. And we started, I thought of it this morning as we were singing, everything that, everything. Matt always seems to start with that song. And there's these people, he said, I don't know if they know my songs out here. And he said, and they all started jumping up and down. I thought, wow, there's the Christians coming out of the woodwork to find this coming together. I had the joy of preaching about the grace of God in the heart of an Islam, Islamic uh, city. So let's believe God. Let's say, Lord, you can do it. You can do it. When John Peepy went back down to Accra, just his wife and children in the first meeting, he said to his four little girls, as they sat and met in their home, now be quiet, this is church. And he took his first meeting, wife and four kids. Now he's got hundreds in Accra and planted other churches across Ghana. Wendy and I walked across some acres of land he's recently uh, bought. He's got a school of some hundreds of children. They're now into Nigeria, Benin, Toga, Guinea, Sierra Leone. I mean, you think, wow, how did that happen? One little guy. I mean, John Peepee stands about here. But he's just said, I believe it's going to happen. I believe it's going to happen. And he's gone for that amazing plot of land. As we looked at it, we said, how did you get it? Well, he said, I believe in God will supply. And, and, he, and over the hill, he said, look, see that area? It's, no one lives there yet, but it's going to come over. The town will grow this way. And Nigel Ring visited him recently. He said, the town has come over the hill as houses are being built. And John's area is right in the center of it. He's gone with faith and vision. We have to have faith and vision. These guys were seers. They saw something. They, like, like Abraham, they saw. And for you here in Winchester, we say, Lord, this is what we are seeing. We're his people. Cyrus, who's he? Well, he's the most powerful international leader of his generation. And he says, look, I have to submit to what God's saying. He was somewhat conscious of it. Often authorities around don't even know whether they're being led this way or that. But in the midst of it is God's people coming through to fulfill God's purpose. Okay, so they were seers. God says, I want you to rebuild my house. It says in Haggai, the contemporary prophet, that I might take pleasure in it and that I might appear in it in my glory. God wants a house that he can take pleasure in and where he can appear in his glory. Okay, so we're looking at survivors. Praise God, we survived judgment. We're out the other side. We can live for him. Seers, we can see what God's going to do. God will work. The tide is turning. A thousand new churches in seven years. David Stroud said he was in London, where, of course, they meet at the Piccadilly Theatre now, as I expect most of you know. Uh, Guys and Dolls has just finished and Greece is just about to start. But already this afternoon, we're in there with hundreds, a similar sort of crowd to here, right there in the heart of London, at Piccadilly. Hallelujah. And David went into a secular music shop and said, um, he was asking the guy about various instruments, were they selling much and so on. The guy said, I'm selling so quickly. I can't get enough stuff, I'm selling it. And, and he asked the secular music shop guy, how come? He said, it's all these new churches opening everywhere. They want drum sets, they want the whole thing. That's what he was told. An amazing thing. 
There's all these new churches that are opening, buying up my musical instruments. Hallelujah. We're in a new day. God wants us to be full of expectation that he will break through. And then last of all, this morning, we're looking at supporters whose commitment is in the present. Right? Survivors whose judgment is in the past. Seers whose vision is in the future. And then finally, supporters whose commitment is in the present. Supporters. Let those, it says in verse 4, let the men of that place support with silver and gold a free will offering for the house of God. Practical support with silver and gold. Supporters. I guess you're involved in what's happening here. Are you a supporter? Well, the soccer season's over. I wonder who you support. Winchester? Uh, okay, I come from Brighton and Hove, so... My, my son supports Newcastle. When you live in Brighton, you have to support somebody else, okay? So he's a, he's a Newcastle supporter. Uh, well, a fan, probably. He's a fan. And it, that's the first result he always wants to know. How did Newcastle get on? And he just kind of fell in love with them when he was a little boy. And uh, Kevin Keegan was their manager. And uh, um, the brilliant centre forward, whose name suddenly escapes me. And uh, he was just so excited um, being a, a fan. But he said, can we go and see them? And I found in the fixture list where they were going to play in uh, London. And they were playing at Crystal Palace. And uh, it was a premier game. Actually, it was against Wimbledon, but Wimbledon were using Crystal Palace in those days. And uh, so we got friends who helped us. And for the first time in my life, I was exposed to Newcastle supporters. I tell you, it was an education. We walked in and uh, we got our place and, and, and behind us, actually, and all along and behind us were these Newcastle fans. I mean, the game hadn't started and they're already shouting, cheering. And then their players came on just to uh, limber up. And when they ran on, the cheer was deafening. And there were guys, their names, Alan Shearer, whose name's come back to me, and others were getting applauded and shouted. And I thought, but the game hasn't started. And they're all in black and white shirts. And once the game did start, it was just deafening. They've all got seats, but no one used one. They just stood all the time shouting and shouting, shouting. And it was so funny because they weren't actually winning or anything. And, uh, and then... Late in the first half, the, the, the Wimbledon side had their first attack, really, and all the Wimbledon fans that were on the other three sides, they cheered. And it was the first time that they had cheered. And the Newcastle fans just laughed at them. They went, whoa, about time, you know, because about time you supported your team. And it was amazing because they're so supportive, so committed. They're away from home. And do you know what? When they went in at halftime, it was nil-nil. But they're cheering them off. And they cheered them back on again. And they lost. And you know, they still cheered them off at the end. They cheered more than all the Wimbledon fans put together. I thought, boy, that is support. Supporters. Wow. They lifted that team in terms of morale. The team came over and applauded them at the end. There's this supporter. Are you a supporter? 
Or do you, like I did on that day, just turn up occasionally? So you can be like that in a church. You can, you can just turn up occasionally. You can observe. Or you can say, I am in. I am actually a supporter. I am a committed supporter. I am very involved. I am committed to what God is doing here. And today, on this uh, special gift day, this particular focus for today, I want to encourage you to make sure are you a, an authentic supporter? You know, we're reaching to God for a wonderful provision today. We're reaching to God for a large, large sum. Say, so, Lord, you can do that here. You can, you can give us this remaining 400,000. You can provide. You can do it, even today. We can see that between us. We can come because we're seers. We know God wants this done. We're supporters. We're very involved in this commitment. Are you a supporter? God wants us to be supporters, standing totally with them. It says in verse 6 that they encourage them. Encourage them. You know, it's so encouraging when we stand together. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 12, not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but overflowing in many thanksgivings to God, they will glorify God for your obedience. I remember when you started this work. I remember hearing about the breathtaking offering that you took here in one day. I, I don't live here. I live miles away. But your obedience went like a tidal wave across the nation. Have you heard? Have you heard? What happened at Winchester? Have you heard? I remember it going woof, woof, across the land because your obedience encouraged many. As we went for our thing in Brighton, for our building and others in different places, you could say to people, now listen, in Winchester, I've done that from public places. What they did, what they did, it just, wow, your head, the heads of people come up, they look at the building place and can we possibly do that? At East Grinstead, not the metropolis of the nation, they're going for a three million pound project. I was in their church mm, three weeks, four weeks ago. And they're going for their three million project. You think, wow, three million project. I expect you know about Bournemouth. It's nearer to you than it is to me. Amazing what God's doing. Milton Keynes, they've just come up with a 1,500-seater warehouse. I keep hearing here and here. But what gets said, when people say, can we do this? Well, do you hear what God did in Winchester? What? This. What, on one day? Yeah, one day. Wow. It's true, friends. You've lifted and encouraged. And as we finish this off too, if we say, right, we're going to get this done. Come on, let's dig deep. We're going to write this off today. Another shout, another wave. It's so encouraging when we play our part. We say, yes, count me in. I'm part of this. I'm really involved. I am a supporter. I am a, I'm a shouter. I've got the shirt. I'm there. They were supporters they were encouragers and they brought a free will offering. And it is free will. It's important we understand that there is no compulsion. It's important that God, God wants something from the heart. That's why as I read that passage to you from Isaiah chapter 1, God says, I hate you coming with this external worship. 
I hate you coming. It says, you know, you come again and again with all these sacrifices. He said, we should close the thing down. God doesn't want us doing anything reluctantly. He wants it from the heart. He wants us to say, Lord, you know, we love you. We're for you. Nothing matters more to me than seeing you glorified in my town. Nothing matters more to me than making you famous, taking every opportunity. I just heard this last week. One of the pastors at home, he said he went into Tesco's. He's just going up to the, get his the checkout. And the lady's getting the stuff spread in. And she looked up at him and she said, guess what? She said, the guy who just went out before you and he looked and he'd gone. She said, he said, God, ha- God loves me and has a wonderful purpose for my life. What do you make of that? And so the pastor told her what he made of that. Hey, how about a living church in the town? You know, where Tesco checkouts, hey, you can't escape God. She thinks, hey, what do you make of that? And she's asking a pastor, <laughs> boom. Hey, let's build great churches where God is in the midst of the town. God is here. God wants great churches witnessing to him. But it is from our heart. It's not because someone compels. No one compelled that mystery witness. He did it from his heart. And God wants us to be giving from our hearts. But notice it is an offering. It's an offering. It says, bring your offerings. And when you say it's an offering, you're saying this is for God. We're not just having a whip round for the paint and bricks. This is for God. It's so much for God. It's an offering. Not just for the box or the plate. It's for God. And what does that, what does that do to it? Well, it sanctifies the gift. It lifts it to a much higher plane. As John Stott says, God doesn't want us tipping him. It's lifting, saying, no, this is for God. This is an offering for God. What I do here this morning, when we say, right, let's come and bring our gifts. Lord, this is my free will offering to you. It's not just, oh, I've got this, this is what I seem to have left. No, no, this is something, everyone should make up their own mind and then bring it joyfully to God. That's what it says. It lifts it, it sanctifies it. It's giving for God to see. Not just for man to add up the figures. We're saying, Lord, this is part of my worship. It's part of my devotion. And it gives, it gives your gift incredible value. Paul says this in Philippians 4.18, Having received what you have sent, and then he says this, and they've, they've sent money to Paul, who's doing apostolic work. And he says, A fragrant aroma an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. It's not just here, oh, Paul, this might help. It's, no, no, this is for God. It's acceptable. It's an offering. He's using kind of temple language. It's an offering. We don't have a physical temple anymore, but we bring our offerings. We bring our worship, a fragrant aroma, acceptable, well-pleasing. Should we be well-pleasing? Do you think what you're going to give this morning will be well-pleasing to God? That's what he wants from us. I, Lord, I want to do this for you. I want to, I, Lord, thank you. I'm a survivor. Lord, I could have been lost forever. I came through on the other side. I can see what you're after. I want to, I want to give something that really counts. I want to live as someone 
escaped. Someone who was given their life back. I'm a survivor. I want to make sure my life really counts for God. Hebrews 13, 16 says, With such sacrifices, God is well pleased. God wants us to bring worship to him in a moment. I'm sure we'll get directions and uh, be told how to present our gifts in a moment. But let's make sure, yeah, Lord, this is for you. This is our worship. This is our delight.